Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 132 for the week ending, December 7th, 2018, the Farewell to George Bush edition. As Jay and I prepare for the holiday season, we consider some issues over the past week, data privacy, FCPA, FCPA convictions, the Les Moonves scandal, and have some personal remembrances of George Bush. First, word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of the top stories we look at this week are the recent issue of Compliance Week, which devoted an entire issue to data privacy. In the FCPA world, we look at potential bribes by J. Lowe in the 1MDB scandal to U.S. government officials, some common pitfalls in due diligence, a FCPA conviction of an individual, and Goldman Sachs continuing imbroglio in the 1MDB scandal. We take a look at some of the commentary around the modification to the Yates memo and the damning report about Les Moonves and his conduct at CBS and indeed the board of directors and senior management at CBS. We take a look at two new podcasts uh, joining the Compliance Podcast Network this week. Great Women in Compliance with Mary Fine, excuse me, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine, and then Popcorn and Compliance, Compliance Lessons at the Movies with Tom Fox and Jay Rosen. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and together with Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen, we'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 132 for the week ending December 7th, 2018, the Farewell to George Bush edition. As we both prepare for the holiday season, we're going to take a look at some of the top uh, stories that caught our eye this week, and we're going to end with uh, a personal remembrance or two on uh, George H.W. Bush. So, Jay, uh, first of all, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I guess we would be remiss to uh, acknowledge uh, or not acknowledge that today is uh, December 7th, which is a day that will live in infamy. So just to uh, put that out there before we start things off. And happy Pearl Harbor Day. Yes. So, indeed, Jay, we had a uh, a week that spilled over that had so much stuff that we had trouble getting it all in. So maybe we just ought to jump in right into it. Uh, I wanted to highlight uh, Compliance Week where, full disclosure and spoiler alert, I write for and, and uh, do podcasts for Compliance Week. They devoted their entire Q4 issue to data privacy, and there's some great stuff in there. Um, so I'd just like to highlight three articles. One was from Hillary Wandell, and she talked about what uh, data privacy might look like 
legislation might look like in the U.S. And she said there will likely be four components, organizational governance, risk management, comprehensive policies, and training. She really called upon the U.S. Congress to uh, do, do something, pass some legislation so that we can be a lead influencer on this. Obviously, the uh, EU with GDPR takes the lead now. Uh, and if we can't get something in place, the uh, state first, the, all, every 50 state will have a different, 50 states will have a different one. But also, um, really, the U.S. needs to maintain its lead in innovation. And then she also says, in a great point, address data privacy now for a competitive and compliance advantage. So um, that was a nice one. We had a, uh, I was part of a triumvirate of writers who talked about the unintended consequences of data privacy. Uh, Joe Mont uh, talked about slowing innovation among smaller companies. Jacqueline Jager looked at the conflict between KYC mandatory uh, investigations and privacy regulations. And I took a look at how data privacy might impact your anti-corruption investigation going forward. And then finally, the last uh, article I'd like to highlight was on another article by Jacqueline um, on the elements of a best-in-class data privacy program. And she really did a great job really laying out what you need to have if you're a chief compliance officer or compliance professional in the anti-corruption, anti-bribery space. This None of this will be new to you. But she suggests getting a grip on your data privacy obligations, assigning ownership within your organization of the uh, role. Uh, She she detailed the role of internal audit in uh, data privacy. And uh, I don't think many uh, folks had thought about that, but she really lays it out. Obviously, board and senior management leadership is a key element. Think about the costs. uh, And then finally, uh, training, training, and training for your employees. So three great articles. Uh, Jay, we had a um, a series. Well, I'm not even sure series is the right word. We had an arrest in Canada last week on Saturday. It was announced this week, so that's why it's in this week's news, of um, the uh, C- chief financial officer of the Chinese company, and we can't figure out how to pronounce it, but uh, we're going to go with just Huawei. Huawei. Huawei, I just checked. There you go. Huawei. And it's not like it's not that we're Elmer Fudd and we have a lisp. It's Huawei. Huawei. OK, so we may have to get the girls in for some uh, expert advice on this. Nevertheless, uh, the CFO, uh, one Ming Wanzhou, uh, is the daughter of the founder of the company. And she was arrested in, in China, excuse me, in Canada at the request of the United States for a sealed indictment alleging violation of U.S trade and sanctions policies for sales of uh, equipment into Iran. Um, the thing that there's lots of things going on here, and I'm, I'm very much concerned, Jay, that this is going to have, uh, if not unintended consequences, blowback beyond blowback, because uh, I can clearly see the Chinese doing a tit for tat on just about any U.S. executive. And if I was a U.S. executive, I would be very much thinking about a nice long holiday in the United States right now. Um, You just can't arrest people at this level without some sort of coordination or, you know, uh, I just think it's it's really sends the absolute worst signal to the Chinese. It uh, was done on the day when Donald Trump was actually having dinner with the president of China, 
Uh, some reports have said he knew about it or was briefed on it. Some reports said he knew nothing about it. He's obviously trying to renegotiate a trade deal with China. Uh, this just has to be one very large hand grenade thrown in the middle of that. Um, the, I don't think the Chinese will take this uh, lightly or sitting uh, sitting down for very long. So, uh, like I said, if you're a U.S. Uh, U.S. citizen, and you're running a Chinese subsidiary, it might be a really nice time to go see the family. Also, I think there's a similarity in the fact pattern in this matter, as well as what we just recently saw with ZTE. And again, it's, uh, you know, companies trying to circumvent sanctions and sending equipment to uh, sanctioned companies, uh, countries rather, like Iran. So that's also a situation here. And then there's um, whereas uh, ZTE, I believe, was just a maker of handsets, that Huawei it also uh, is a maker of networks and next-generation technology. And there is a, a large concern that what they may be building uh, is being built for espionage pur- purposes and spying on the U.S. So uh, it, it's, it's going to be a very major matter, and we will uh, definitely see what co- happens in the week to come. Uh, also kind of focused on Asia, your favorite exec, Jay Lowe. What is happening with him? Jay, there were some interesting developments in the 1MDB scandal, and these were around uh, Jay Lowe. A uh, couple of filings in the United States indicated uh, two uh, what John Roush called troubling dimensions of uh, this case. One was using U.S. citizens to help launder money. And in a forfeiture action, there was uh, over $73 million in the fu- in funds the DOJ said was connected to money that had been embezzled from one MDB. And there were t- two U.S. individuals who uh, were uh, named who may have inadvertently or intentionally helped funnel the money. One was uh, apparently a noted rapper, although he's not noted in the Tom Fox household, Braz Michelle. Uh, and the second was perhaps even more troubling, uh, Jay. It's a fellow named George Higginbotham. And George Higginbotham, up until August 2018, as in three months ago, was the uh, senior was a senior Justice Department Congressional Affairs Specialist. That means he's a U.S. government employee. And they both opened multiple bank accounts at U.S. financial institutions, which received money from accounts controlled by Jay, uh, excuse me, by low, your J. Uh, and the purpose of the funds was to pay individuals inside the United States, i.e. bribes. So um, we now have potentially a U.S. government official being bribed to pay bribes. And that's a development that I, uh, I, I think was surprising to many people. The money laundering part had been well known and documented through other forfeiture actions. So um, that really takes things to a very different level uh, the Department of Justice uh, had actually, uh, in rare public statements, said uh, there was no influence on them, uh, even though one of their employees had been bribed. Uh, Higginbotham has been arrested over this. So a really different way to go. I, I don't suppose it would be surprising that J. Lowe would pay bribes in the United States. He paid them everywhere else, so uh, or alleged to have paid them everywhere else. So um, once again, we will keep our eye on this going forward. Now, are we sure that Mr. Higginbotham might not be like a deep, deep, deep undercover swamp spy, kind of just, you know, making sure everything's going okay? 
Um, you know, those people don't tend to be indicted and arrested. They gotcha. tend to go off and uh, retire somewhere in the witness protection program. So uh, next up, we've got a couple articles about how banks can improve their anti-money laundering programs. Uh, one of them is from our good friend uh, Sam Rubenfeld over at the uh, Wall Street Journalist Com- Risk and Compliance Journal. And uh, banks that find problems with legacy compliance programs when testing new technology won't necessarily be penalized for prior failures. This is uh, new information that came out from Seagal. Um, hopefully I get our last name right. Mendelker, she's a U.S. Treasury Department Undersecretary for uh, Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. And she recently was at the uh, FCPA conference uh, at National Harbor. And uh, basically what this is doing is it's pilot programs are exposing gaps in anti-money laundering compliance programs, and they will not necessarily result in any supervisory action with respect to the program. So this is uh, the government once again uh, encouraging individual banks to use all sorts of technology that is at their um, disposal, whether it's being AI or other pilot programs that they can use. And uh, we also get this picked up by uh, Matt Kelly on his radical compliance. And Matt, ever being the cynic, says that this brings two questions to mind. Number one, he's wondering where the state of New York will come down on this. Uh, The state attorney general and the DFS, Department of Financial Services, both have no problems telling the federal regulators where they can stick their new pronouncements. So uh, he's wondering uh, whether or not DFS will play ball. And second, he says the statement also says that the implementation of innovative uh, approaches in banks, BSA and AML compliance programs will not result in additional regulatory uh expectations. So uh, I guess, according to Matt, the point of the news is so that regulators and banks together can develop stronger best practices. And uh, now if you are an in-house AML uh, specialist, uh, get ready for a fresh onslaught of sales pitches from reg tech vendors who are going to help to bring their good ideas to you. So can we continue with another uh, one MDB story? Let's do it. Uh, Two lawyers from New York, uh, Robert Anello and Richard Albert, wrote a very interesting article in the New York Law Journal entitled One MDB Scandal Test Justice Department on FCPA and Corporate Prosecutions. And I thought it was very thought-provoking, perhaps even a little uh, uh, provocative, because they basically discounted everything Tim Leisner said at his guilty plea hearing, uh, saying that he was a lying scumbag and that uh, he shouldn't be trusted. And that when he says that uh, Goldman's culture was um, in line with lying, cheating and stealing, that that should be discounted because that's what he did, lying, cheating and stole. But they point out that somehow uh, – and they also note correctly – that Goldman was noted in the charging documents as having a robust compliance program. They seem to view this as a one zero go no go um, uh, by uh, uh, dynamic. That it's only it's either one or the other, and they don't seem to appreciate that you could actually have a robust compliance program. Yet you could have a culture 
set by the tone at the top and senior management of lying, cheating, and stealing. Uh, that would be called a paper program. Um, so um, they believe that the government, the U.S. government, may have difficulty, or at least will be challenged, in how they treat Goldman. So will they give Goldman credit and give him a pass, uh, a declination? Will they give him a non-prosecution agreement? Uh, what about <clears throat> the fines and penalties? Obviously, it's well-known Goldman made some $600 million on this deal. Will they have to pay that in restitution? Is the five-year statute run? Or will this money be paid back to uh, the 1MDB fund as ill-gotten gain? And if so, will uh, Goldman get credit for that? How much will the fine and penalty be when you have $600 million in profits? Uh, I think the fines generally are, are pretty high uh, based upon that under the sentencing guideline uh, formula. And how much credit will Goldman get for its cooperation? How much credit will Goldman get for the remediation of its compliance program? It is still not clear whether Goldman self-disclosed this. Um, this scandal has obviously been well known for some period of time. We do not know. Uh, Goldman did not make any public announcements about this until they disclosed in an 8Q uh, filing about this matter, and it reserved some $2 billion for uh, the entire matter, uh, investigation, remediation, fine and penalty, uh, and attendant lawsuits. So um, they, uh, I thought it was really interesting the um, you know laying all that out and seeing, uh, particularly with uh, Rod Rosenstein's announcement last week, uh, week of the changing of the Yates memo <clears throat> so that only those who had substantially excuse me, were substantially involved and or responsible for the misconduct at issue would be turned over to the government. That's individuals. Uh, this scandal apparently went to the highest levels of Goldman. So what does all that mean? Very thought provoking, very interesting. And uh, we will definitely uh, keep our eye on this one going forward, Jay. Yes, indeed. So uh, next up, we have uh, more uh, conviction news. Uh, Hong Kong's former home secretary was convicted by a Manhattan federal jury Wednesday for bribing African officials on behalf of a Chinese energy company. Patrick Ho, 69, was found guilty after a one-week trial in the Southern District of New York. The jury deliberated only one day and convicted Ho on seven accounts, one count for conspiring to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, four counts of violating the FCPA, one count of conspiring to commit international money laundering, and one count of committing international money laundering. Um, he was acquitted on one count of money laundering, and he had denied all eight accounts against him. Uh, Holmes, Ho was Hong Kong's Home, Secretary, Home Affairs Secretary from 2002 to 2007, and he had been in federal uh custody since last November. He offered to post a $10 million bond, but was denied bail. Uh, he now faces up to five years in prison on each FCPA-related count. And the DOJ said that Ho, with the help of his co-defendant, Sheik Gaudio, offered $2 million in bribes to the president of Chad. Gaudio, 62, is a former finance minister of Senegal, and he acted as a witness under a non-prosecution agreement. So um, once again, another high-profile uh, individual uh, convicted of uh, FCPA offenses. So next, Jay, um, 
there was lots of commentary about the Yates memo and what it means for the CCO. We've cited to multiple uh, sources, Jonathan Marks on bo- uh, Board and Fraud blog, Michael Peregrine and Rebecca Martin on NYU's Compliance and Enforcement blog. I took a look at it um, today. Uh, Matt Kelly wrote in Radical Compliance. Kevin LaCroix looked at it uh, from the insurance angle on his great DNO uh, diary. The, uh, really, the consensus seems to be that it was not that big of a change. Uh, they went from uh, companies being required to turn over information of all individuals involved in the bribery scheme to those, um, as I noted in the, the last piece, substantially involved. Uh, I don't think this will negatively impact FCPA enforcement. I think it will uh, probably help uh, make more expeditious SBA, uh, FCPA investigations because companies can complete their investigations more quickly. Uh, I went through that pretty quickly, Jay, because I wanted to spend some time on uh, what I think is uh, just was just a horrific report, internal investigation at CBS on Les Moonves. Uh, It is horrific in terms of what it alleges Moonves did and engaged in personally, but it's also damning, I think, on CBS as an organization, their culture. Even, but even down to senior management and specific board members, boards of directors. Uh, so you want to kind of tell us about this? Yeah, I mean, this stuff is shocking, even um, from my standards, having worked in Hollywood in the um, late 80s and the early 90s. And we have a couple reports from the New York Times. Uh, James B. Stewart, who's a wonderful business writer, Rachel Abrams and David Enrich. And then we also take a look at something from uh, Salon by Matthew Desim. And uh, basically, this was a pattern of activity that's been going on uh, predating Les Moonves when he joined the CBS board. And he, I believe, over the last 10 or 11 years has almost made a billion dollars by working for CBS and helping the company uh, grow at uh, a solid pace. But what is uh, revealing from this investigation that just came out is that he has been a, a known sexual predator, um, both having consensual and non-consensual sex with uh, employees who ranked under him. And there were people, uh, we talk about Arnold Copelson, who was a film executive, won an a Oscar for the movie. Platoon. Uh, Copelson knew about something that happened in 1995 with a friend of his, Dr. Peters, who reported uh, an incident with Moonves, and uh, basically Copelson ignored that. He joined the CBS board. He did not let them know about this, and there are other gaffes of um, people who are on the board who look the other way and uh, allowed uh, Moonves to continue with his uh, predatory ways. So uh, I guess uh, as bad as it was for Moonves, and it was bad, you, you were absolutely right. There was both consensual and non-consensual sex in the office and outside the office. He forced himself on uh, multiple women. Uh, there was a, a very big article we did not cite to last week in the Sunday Times about how he tried to use a uh, – an agent uh, to help buy off uh, some of the women uh, he had uh, sexually uh, harassed and abused. Uh, but the entire, uh, the, the bigger uh, part for me was that uh, everybody at CBS knew 
the board knew, senior management knew. At one point, uh, one um, one person actually drafted a letter of resignation for Moonves, uh, which was never signed. Um, this uh, entire uh, and I really like the way you set that up because I think that's how most people who are outside Hollywood would say. Even someone from inside Hollywood was shocked at this. So um, that really speaks to a to a culture that was just uh, run rampant with uh, this type of behavior. And from the senior leadership and board of directors perspective, uh, I think that this will be studied uh, a lot going forward. Um, so before we get to our remembrances of uh, George Bush, I just wanted to, to highlight a couple of podcasts, Jay. Uh, the first one is uh, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine premiered Great Women in Compliance this week. They had three episodes up. Uh, two of them, uh, one was with Christy Grant Hart, a second was with Ellen Hunt, and a third one I interviewed them on why they started this podcast. That's on the Compliance Podcast Network. And then uh, I take special pride in you and I having yet another podcast, uh, Popcorn and Compliance. Uh, we sort of set the week up uh, with our series on the intersection of Star Wars and Compliance. So we looked at uh, A New Hope and Risk, The Empire Strikes Back and Due Diligence, Return of the Jedi and Compliance Training, Force Awakens and Disruptive Innovation. And today it was Rogue One and the Myth of the Rogue Employee. And tomorrow I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce to our listeners that you and I will be premiering our first new episode where we take a look at Bohemian Rhapsody. So uh, once again on the Compliance Podcast Network, Jay and I are going to try to podcast a couple of times uh, a month on both our love of the movies and uh, our love of compliance. So uh, it's going to be interesting uh, to see which way that goes, uh, given our, uh, our our fandom. So, Jay, I wanted to, to really take a couple of minutes uh, to just get a couple of three uh, remembrances from you and maybe from me about uh, George H.W. Bush, who died a week ago uh, today. We're recording this on December 7th. Uh, he had a, a funeral uh, service at the National Cathedral. It was a memorial service here in Houston in what I thought was a great touch. They uh, took his body for uh, internment uh, by train from Houston to College Station, Texas, where the George Bush Memorial Library is. And um, lots of lots of remembrances. I, I, I think I would be safe in assuming that uh, certainly from my perspective, we sat on the opposite sides of the political fence, I would assume uh, you as well. But I don't think that takes away from our admiration for him, our views on his uh, truly uh, lifelong uh, government service and kind of what he meant uh, to the United States. So uh, with that, what uh, are two or three remembrances or, or things that really s uh, stick out for you about George H.W. Bush? So a couple things that stick out, one or just a couple sound bites that I know have been recorded uh, over time and they've even be mi been mixed into songs. But uh, when he was running against Reagan in uh, the 1980 uh, election, he kept talking about Reagan's voodoo economics. And I th think that stuck in the public consciousness. And unfortunately, he made a promise of no new taxes, read my lips. And those couple things, I think, unfortunately uh, framed America's um, picture of President George Herbert Walker Bush. And that also kind of gave rise to the Tea Party and Newt Gingrich. So there was a lot of just interesting uh, backtracking that I was doing 
as uh, you know, we've been basically replaying President uh, Bush's life since last Friday. Um, there's so much love for his family, so much of a sense of duty for his country. Uh, as soon as World War II was, uh, you know, uh, was America was dragged in, he had an opportunity, uh, like my fellow Wharton classmate, to avoid the draft and to uh, safely stay in New Haven and go to Yale. And he had such a duty for his country that he joined uh, the Navy. He ran missions. He was spared and then realized that he had a duty for a life of public service. So all that just makes me respect the man. And I kind of feel bad that he didn't get a second term. And the one thing that, um, you know, kind of avoided him, him that he wasn't able to get was this whole, as he calls it, the vision thing. So uh, I think it was a great time of healing for the country. I think it was classy that they invited the current president. And uh, I was very happy that the current president uh, showed uh, President Bush the dignity and the respect that he was due. So, Jack, a couple of things for me. One uh, was that he enlisted on his 18th birthday. Uh, my father enlisted. Uh, actually, he had to get his parents' permission because he enlisted before he turned 18. And that really speaks to how the average American uh, felt about serving their country at that time of crisis. Uh, the second thing was his stand on the uh, 1968 Fair Housing Act. He, George Bush had voted against, actually, and opposed, not voted against, but had opposed the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And yet he uh, uh, came around uh, on the Fair Housing Act. This was an incredibly unpopular position in his district, uh, which was is or was West Houston, the 7th Congressional District. Yet he believed it was the right thing to do, and he stood up uh, to constituents who wanted to continue uh, discrimination in housing. And the third thing was his prosecution of the first Gulf War. Uh, he, uh, I think, innately understood in a way that certainly his son and his son's administration did not, that uh, they should not invade Iraq. And he had every opportunity to invade Iraq. Uh, his generals were ready to turn on Iraq. Um, Storm and Norman uh, could have probably gone directly to uh, the capital of Iraq and deposed uh, Assam Hussein. Um, then and there. Yet uh, he didn't do so. Uh, and that uh, led, of course, to his son invading Iraq on specious claims, uh, and we're still suffering the effects of that. Uh, but his father knew that, uh, as his father knew innately, when the wall fell down and uh, Soviet Union dissolved, uh, that you don't have to rub it in and you don't have to go too far. And sometimes... Uh, stepping back or stopping is uh, the right way to do before you uh, stomp on someone so badly that uh, they can't get back up. So um, kudos to George H.W. Bush. Uh, he showed us many things. Um, uh, I listened to a podcast today where it said he may have been the last wasp, uh, certainly the last wasp politician. Uh, came from an age where uh, those from privilege viewed it as their obligation to be become involved in um government and public service, and George H.W. Bush uh, certainly was that. So, uh, Jay, with uh, with that, um, 
I just saw that uh, Rami Malek was nominated for a Golden Globe. So uh, uh, that was before we recorded Bohemian Rhapsody, which will go up tomorrow. But uh, I hope that will uh, enhance our uh, listeners viewing or listening pleasure to that tomorrow. With that, you want to take us home? Absolutely. On behalf of Tom Fox, a compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 132 for the week ending December 7, 2018, the farewell to George H.W. Bush edition. Rest in peace, Mr. President. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you will join us tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Central when Jay and I will premiere our first new episode of Popcorn and Compliance, where we take a look at a double Golden Globe nominee, Bohemian Rhapsody, and talk about the movie, our love for it, and compliance lessons therefrom. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA, where we detail some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.